0: To our sound and editing wizard, Ben, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn. Or... <laughs> 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 did, you just, did you just mix up LinkedIn and Twitter? What?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say that's quite exciting that maybe we've just hit on a business model. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Cloud realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman.
0: I'm Shao Kazal,
2: And I'm Rob Kernahan. This week we'll be taking a view on how to become a data-driven organization. What are the steps that you need to take and what are some of the challenges that you need to overcome and actually what's the scale of organization you need to be in place to become a data product organization. Joining us this week, I'm delighted to say is Mark Jones. He's the head of engineering for data and analytics at Reach, UK's largest commercial, national, and regional news publisher. Mark, welcome. Great to see you. Just want to introduce yourself and say a little bit about Reach.
3: Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Reach, as we've mentioned, is a large news publisher. We have a variety of print titles and obviously a lot of websites and digital properties. We're doing a lot of interesting things with technology and data in particular.
2: Let's get a start, Mark, by just digging right into Reach and how they're using data. So why don't you just, before we sort of drill into the complexity of actually, you know, making your data make sense and making it work for you, tell us a little bit about what Reach is actually trying to do with data and how you're trying to leverage it.
3: So Reach is the largest commercial national regional news publisher. We have lots of print media, but a a very large digital presence. It's news. So we've got everything from online websites like the Mirror and the Express through to regional things like Cheshire Live, North Wales Live, My London, that kind of thing. So there's a huge digital footprint. And obviously, we've got a lot of content that we want to get in front of the right people. So, I mean, going to our purpose, Reach's purpose is to enlighten and empower and entertain through journalism and that's all underpinned by data so it's about making sure that we provide relevant content and more engaging experiences to our customers so that they remain engaged with us we build a deeper relationship with them they show we show them news that's important to them and that's basically a a national and a local level so you know obviously we if we want to be able to show you things like local news, such as our in-your-area brand, we need to know where you live. So a lot of that is about value exchange between us and our
2: customers. Would that be I go to the website of, say, one of your publications and I would get content that's aggregated from all of your publications into that one brand front end?
3: No, no. So the brand front end are, are separate. So we do obviously see what you're doing with each of the brands, but there's right. also the opportunity for us to have, we have like an aggregated brand like in your area, which lets you put in where you live and, and brings together content from across all of that space I see. but what's really powerful at all, for us with the data is if you tell us more about you then we can serve you up more in, you know content that we think you'd be interested in so we can say you know here's a story that would be interesting here's something that impacts your particular area and in return that's kind of the the value exchange really which is if you tell us a bit more about you we will give you you more relevant content and we can recommend things for you so we do a lot of stuff around recommendation and other data-driven tools so you know what you're interacting with do you want to see more things like that are the related topics that would be interesting to you and obviously on the other end of that you know we are funded by advertising so we, we you know in in terms of it's not just you don't just pay for physical papers obviously when you visit our websites we show you adverts we want to make sure that they are tailored to you and that you know they're relevant to you and so that we can both make it so that it's not something that's going to frustrate our customers
2: but also has a better yield for us right and just again before we go and dig into some of the architecture behind that and such then the challenges just briefly your team in the middle of that how are you structured around providing data services to that ecosystem
3: So I sit within the wider data and analytics team, which, you know, has the kind of standard team you'd expect to see there's a BI team there's data scientists there's a data management team etc. I look after the data engineering side of things I've got multiple the sort of sub-teams in there so I've got a platform team that is responsible for running all of our data platforms and for ingesting data into our lake so data platforms are things like our lake our enterprise warehouse reporting tools that kind of thing so obviously that's the core of it I've then got a data services team which provides services to the business based around data so that's things like you know APIs to consume and and also to provide data as well as um, them applications to help with the maintenance of that data as well as um you know, tools to help drive some value for the business around that in terms of things like newsletter subscriptions and what have you I've also got another team which is responsible for actually you know loading data into the DW and doing the transformations in there and I've got a team that's responsible for all the machine learning engineering and they are very very clever individuals not that everybody else isn't but those guys in particular are you know really good at what they do um, and they drive all the things like the recommenders on the Site, so obviously the data scientists come up with the different sort of mechanisms that they want to use and the algorithms but in terms of how does that get productionized and how do we run experimentation and a b tests on on different recommenders all sits with them and then finally i've got another team which is after internal data
2: products very cool so if you step back then and look at how you're trying to leverage data across the digital front end and a, a quite complex digital front end with a number of different brands and requirements going on within it, where would you say the organization is on its data journey and maybe like in maturity terms? So are you like level four, five data maturity or are you actually on a journey towards that?
3: I I think we're on the journey towards that. I think different areas are at different maturity levels, and I I would say that's the same for every organisation. I don't think I've ever been in any organisation that can claim to be at level maturity five for anything.
2: Almost (laughs) almost everybody feels like one. It it feels like we've made hardly any progress. It's really, really hard. (laughs) Exactly. So I think
3: in terms of where we are, I think we're in a good place. We've got a good foundation in terms of our infrastructure. So we've got a good set of data platforms in there. We're happy with the technology. You know, we've got patterns and standards for ingesting data and transforming it. And obviously we're doing some very advanced things with that data in terms of machine learning algorithms and other bits and pieces. So I'm quite happy with that. I think data governance is a good area as well. We take it very seriously. So people inside Reach understand the value of our data and also the need to make sure it's used appropriately and kept safe and secure, which I think is very good because not all organisations take data quite so seriously in terms of that. I think where we could be better is I, I'm, I'm very keen on self-service, but to do self-service, you've got to have a huge amount of collateral in terms of data catalogs, data lineage, documentation, that kind of thing. So I think we could improve in those areas, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with where we are in terms of the capabilities we're providing and that we've got the right foundation to go to our next stage of growth.
0: It sounds pretty mature to me, Mark.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it does. And I was just going say, was there a point when the business really cottoned onto the power of data? It sounds like it happened a while ago because you're well on your data journey. Was there a threshold moment or was it something that there was a flywheel effect that went on slowly? They understood that if you apply this stuff more and more, suddenly there is a really good reason to to use it as part of your business
3: model. So I think that happened. Um Unfortunately, that happened before I joined Reach, I think. So it's quite hard for me to talk to about that. But I think there's definite awareness. And one of the reasons I actually joined Reach was that the the second point on there Sort of strategy was data-led proposition, and so to see something like data at the second as the second point on you know on a corporate strategy is actually very rare in my experience. Usually, you'll see there's four or five key things, and then there'll be something in a blurb at the bottom of your average company thing saying, "Oh yes, and we will use customers.
1: we have some data." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where oh yeah, it? we mustn't forget about data. Yeah,
3: that's <laughs> it. Whereas what I really like about Reach is they're very upfront and say so this is really important. Obviously, the journalism is the most important thing, but data is number two, and I think that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's the same as uh, security in many organisations really oh yeah we best put security on that statement as well because <laughs> <laughs> that's important exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: so, yeah so i'm interested in uh, in reflecting on the journey to this point then so what have been the sort of core challenges and hurdles that you've had to overcome presumably one of them at least must have been aggregating data in the first place given that you've got multiple brands which i assume at one point will have been multiple different publications just tell us a little bit about the journey to here
3: Sure. So it started off, again, before my time with the data lake and then there was the, the initial parts for, of an enterprise data warehouse. And so it was very focused on sort of capturing data. What it's about now is, I think, trying to and where we're trying to get to is how do we make it so that we can combine that data? Because there's lots of different disparate sources. And so the challenges are how do you get all of that data? How do you know what you need and what has value and how do you get it in quickly? And obviously that's where data lakes help because ingestion is a bit easier. But the problem is then when you do find that data is valuable, you need to transform it and make sure it's available so that people can actually use that. I think in terms of one of the big challenges, it's about sort of how do you do identity resolution across websites Mm. and different systems. So we obviously have a central, you know, we have some tools that centralize things around user accounts but you appear in so many other systems so you appear in web tracking systems you appear in an email system you you know there's lots of different um, things plus you've got things like ad tech and martech systems and so how do you how do you identify a user across all of that estate it has been a big challenge that we've got a reasonable solution to um, and so it's it's not just that, but also how do you transform and clean data? Because I'm sure, as you've probably all encountered, you go off, you scrape a bunch of data out of the system, that's fantastic. You can report on it. Then all the anomalies are discovered. You know, one of these fields isn't very well populated. Somebody's put Jeff in there as yeah. their um, date of birth, you know, if you haven't got the right validation in place. So it's how do you get to this whole thing of not just how do you cleanse data after the fact, but how do you make sure that you you can feed that stuff in and work with your you know, your partners across the business well, to put things like validation in the
2: source. And maybe actually we could just dwell on, on that a little bit because the clearing up problem and the inconsistency problem, I think, lies at the, at the root of why most organizations tend to find a data journey extremely difficult. There's another governance layer to that in a second, which I think we'll come to. But I'm just interested in how you guys got after that. Was it literally like a hard yards, sleeves rolled up, almost physical exercise or did you manage to create some automation around it maybe just go a level deeper on how you actually rooted that out
3: sure so our data management team were responsible for, uh, responsible for looking for a lot of data quality stuff so they do a lot of good stuff around sort of producing quality reports where they report on you know some of the metrics in terms of key fields you know mm. what are they populated what's their correctness and that kind of thing and that's has helped to drive us to sort of prioritize sort of engineering tasks
2: so you started with sort of case study like this is, these are the sort of views that we need like business driven perspective on it rather than data model up if you see what yeah doing.
3: and i can't take credit for that in fairness uh, the head of data management's done a really good job in that area mm. the engineers have then responded with without said okay well we can obviously do some clearing up we can try and identify where these things have come from because of course it comes back down to lineage doesn't it of well actually you know you've got this wrong field over here where did it come from where was the problem introduced often it's at source and then of course it's it's how do you work with your colleagues in product across you know because you've got product managers across the whole piece to get them to prioritize and and put things like validation steps in and that kind of thing
1: and do you get the do you feel like you've got over that data trust issue often when you start this type of journey there's some reticent to trust the data because of all the issues that that you talk about where if i use this data in the wild and push it out to a consumer. If I get it wrong, that's a bad thing. But if I get it right, it can be an extremely compelling experience. I think so. I think
3: a lot of it comes down to how reliable is the source system. Um, So part of the thing is that you can't, the key thing is to make sure people don't, don't perceive data as a whole You know, you have to be able to educate the, you know, the consumers and say, well, look, you know, there are some, there's different tiers of systems and there's also, you know, different levels of reliability because you get into things like when you talk about things like, so everyone's very keen on things like single version of truth as an example. But every organization has multiple versions of truth because often what you'll see is most organizations have multiple ways of tracking user behavior and visits. In my experience, you'll often see there's like a core central one. And then companies often have GA because you end up integrating with AdWords. So it's about being able to articulate and say, these data sets are clean and they are reliable. These may be less so, but there's still value. But, you know, it's how do you tier those systems and how, you know, because you have finite resource as well, which is how do you make sure that you instead of tra- spreading yourself across all systems, trying to get to a certain level of quality, you need to make sure that obviously things that are going to be used for things like financial planning and business strategy are you know absolutely rock solid and other things that provide useful insights about certain things are perhaps you know less focused on. Do you find that puts a lot of pressure
1: on the quality of the algorithm that you build so that that understanding of which data set is absolutely the truth and others, which may not be quite correct because you've got this massively distributed view Really, you know, responsibility of multiple organizations, you've got to consolidate that together and then serve a, an experience out. There, m- there must be quite a lot of pressure on the quality of the algorithms that you use and how you constantly tweak them as the data sets move around you that may not be completely under your control. To a certain extent. So, obviously, in terms
3: of gathering data and processing and putting it into general reporting, that's, that's fairly straightforward. And in terms of we can apply a you know, standardized set of rules across things, when you get into the usage of that data for things like recommenders, that becomes much more nuanced. And what's the appropriate things to use is something that the data scientists and machine learning engineers are experts in, and they know how to how to go through that and identify. And that's where things like testing becomes really important. Because you know how, how do you experiment with that and see whether or not you know an, an approach or a new feature is going to yield a, a better result in terms of you know people clicking through and seeing more stuff as opposed to you know in an engineering perspective and reporting perspective it's fairly straightforward to turn around and say you know does this data match this rule does this does this data provide us additional value is a more difficult question to answer.
2: Just returning to your journey then, and your journey to here, we dwelt there a little bit on the data cleansing issue. What are the other elements that have taken you to the point of maturity that you're at?
3: So I think it's about making sure that you've got clear roles and responsibilities. I think I think team structure is really important. Um, not necessarily in terms of you, there is only one structure to do it, but when you do settle on it, you've got very clear roles and responsibilities for teams. So you know, there's there's multiple ways of doing that. So for us, we are tended to focus more on particular areas. So it's it's kind of a bit more of a vertical split to a certain extent for a lot of the teams. So there's a team that looks after the platforms and data lake. There's another one that's looking after the EDW. There's another one that's looking after some data to services stuff around that so things like you know, apps for our business users and um, APIs for services. It
2: might seem like an obvious question but why is that structure working for you? What is it about that sort of shape that means that it's pushing forward the agenda around data?
3: I think it's working for us because it enables us to have clear roles and responsibilities and we're able to align that around um, the people that we have and the skills we want to build because you get into this whole thing of well you can go the other way and say, well, you can go with completely cross-functional teams as an example. And yeah, right. try to look right. at things like data mesh and data products. And I think that's that's I think data products is, is absolutely the best way to do that. But you need a very large, very mature organization for mm. that to work because you can't build something like a data mesh without every team involved in that understanding a lot about data. Um, in terms of a platform level and
2: transformation. And just for listeners who maybe don't have a mental model of what updated product structure would look like, maybe just give us a sense of what that would look like so we can compare the two.
3: So a data product is when you decide that you want to try and introduce product thinking. So a lot of this got publicized quite widely um, with the um, excellent paper, I can't remember the author's name, about, uh, the author's name about uh, data meshes. So the idea was that you would treat data as a product in the same way that you would treat things like website areas as a product. So for example, if you were running like a retail website, you might have things like you know product pages or the customer, the on-book customer onboarding as like a product that somebody looks after. You might have something like, Logistics as another product that somebody looks after or an area. And so you'd have those products as we look after the logistics chain, we provide logistics services to the business, we provide customer onboarding, we provide product information, that kind of thing. So you could have those as different product teams. Probably not the best explanation I've given, but.
2: Hopefully it suffices. It's also a more sort of blended skill within a within yeah, a yeah, so absolutely, Yes, absolutely. So yeah. the
3: whole idea of of, multi, of cross-disciplinary teams whereby each of those teams has got back-end engineers, front-end engineers, testers, BAs, delivery managers, etc. The idea with data products is you, you also go there with data and potentially you can either have separate things or more likely you try and say that that data is part of that product. So what happens there is I could say, well, if I was responsible for, say, the logistics data, or the logistics function, I will provide logistics data products which tell you things like stock levels as a data product and, um, you know, uh, warehouses and delivery lead times and things like that. And so I could create that data set as a sort of mini data lake, if you like, and say, I will publish all these things here. And these are high quality pieces of information as opposed to the traditional model, which is that it's just exported or left in a database somewhere and a central data team collects that. Now, To get to that level, you've got to have a lot of organisational maturity in terms of product management and a lot of data skills in each of those teams. Unfortunately, at the moment, data skills are still relatively rare compared to general software engineering. It's still quite a very specific specialism. So, you end up with quite large things and it's where so quite large teams, and where do you get to in terms of things like economies of scale? Cause that's always the trade-off, which is do you have cross-disciplinary teams that can do everything, or do you have certain centers of excellence? Like it's a bit like um, DevOps as an example, which is a principle in terms of, you know, you want developers to operate their code and be able to write infrastructure as code and that sort of stuff. What often happens is you have a small central team of DevOps as well that are responsible for looking at overall management of your cloud estate is the thing that I've seen. Now, obviously, you guys know much more about this than I do, so I don't know if you've seen that kind of model where you, you have a mix of embedded resource and central teams at the center of excellences.
1: Yeah, and I think there's there's definitely the, the adage products and platforms. So platforms give you capability, products serve the business. The beautiful thing you talk about there with the data as the product is the business understand what you're serving them and they can value it and they can govern it because you're serving it to them in a way that they understand it. So it's not just random technology in the corner that does magic. It is, oh, I understand that function that that gives me because it helps me achieve my role and my job and my outcome. I think, the power of the product is permeating throughout the IT organization because it, it it's that it helps bring that fusion of business and technology um, together because everybody understands its same lexicon, same language, and you can talk about the same topic. So it's it's, it's a powerful thing. And I think the maturity is as you say you've got you you're well on your maturity journey and it's the shows the sophistication that you've built into your operating model to show that, that you can value and govern and exploit the data that you've got.
3: I think also one of the reasons for centralizing it is because ultimately data becomes really valuable when you combine it together. And that's why we've seen lots of interesting things like data yeah. fabrics. And so kind of having teams with specialists that can bring all of that data together and in a way and expose it, it kind of makes a more natural sense for me, particularly around things like enterprise data warehousing. And hmm. um, So I think unless you've got a very large organization with a lot of engineering clout across each of the different divisions, centralization is a good starting point.
2: So I want to t- talk briefly uh, then about the governance structure you've got in around the data and how you're linking, say, like data infrastructure concerns and data clarity to a uh, business objective.
3: So one of the key things is obviously we want to make sure that you know, we are processing data in a way that is in line with you know, the various regulations, but also in ways that, that are sensible. And so what I mean by that is, you know, there are certain things you're allowed to, so you're allowed to process data in terms of legitimate interest and in terms of consent, but also you want to make sure that you're doing things that's sensible with that data. So not just in terms of making sure that you're treating customers fairly and that kind of thing, but around the stuff of don't, if you're trying to to determine something, make sure you're using the right data to do that. Because one of the, problems is that you get this sort of misunderstanding of people talking about things like correlation implies causation where they go well i've plotted these two disparate points together Mm. and therefore this is happening and you've used the wrong data and you've got completely the wrong conclusion so it's about making sure that our data governance covers off you know is there a data protection impact assessment in place is this project using data in a way that it's allowed to can we source the data we need to actually you know answer this question or 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 provide this particular value because obviously one of the things we're trying to do is say can we use data to tell us x or we want to know if why have we got the data to do that Mm. can we use that data you know in terms of we think it's the right it's the right thing to do and there's legal basis for the processing and that kind of thing and is that data reliable and it's kind of hard to talk about it in sort of general terms because obviously it really does depend on on exactly what you're trying to answer and what data you know you have. And so it does vary per project, but you have to sort of look at it and turn around and say, well, what's? it's almost like a little mini feasibility study really, which is, is it feasible to use this data for this purpose? And have we got the right checks in there? And how do we get an answer on that, like a, a finger in the air idea of that before we start an initiative? And do you find the business are the ones
1: now requesting, is it feasible to, or is it the tech? And the scientists going, did you know it might be feasible too? Which which way is the pull coming from in your experience?
3: So we get a lot of it from the business. Now, I, I can't talk to a lot of that because there is a separate sort of you know, BI function that looks after that mainly, but obviously we know we get requests in from them, and we do get some directly from from stakeholders and systems. So the business is very interested, as they are in anything, which just, well, this thing has happened, what can you tell us about it? Yeah. Um, or we want to understand this, or... And we use data to to determine if we did this, this particular action, we would see an uptick in in positive behaviors or something like that.
1: But that's quite powerful when the business have the data curiosity and they're coming to you because they understand the potential that you can serve to them. So that's, again, that's that psychological, uh, or I should say maturity step that happens in the business that says, hang on a minute, I can value this data and then I can exploit it and get more out of it. And that's a nice thing to see that they get excited about it as well.
3: Yeah, definitely.
2: Casting the net forward, then, what do you think the next couple of years look like? And have you set out a vision for what data usage in the organization looks like?
3: So, yeah, in particular, from the engineering point of view, what I'm interested in is making sure that we ingest as much data as possible. And we try to move more stuff to real time ingestion, because I think that's where some of the real power is coming from. So obviously, if you go back 10, 15 years, a lot of data ingestion was just done as batch but now that we see there's so many things now that exist that enable us to do real time stuff, it's about trying to move as much of that into real time ingestion because not only can we then ingest that and do, you know, our standard daily reporting and that kind of thing, but you have an opportunity to react to signals and things as they happen. And I think like things like streaming analytics are, are going to become really interesting and really powerful. So you know, if you look at things like, you know, event-driven models and, you know, so Kafka, for example, has been a classic thing for this and that's been around a while. I remember using it very early on. The ability to basically pump all of your data into a central topic and then start to look at signals is really useful, particularly if you look at like streaming analytics and Windows where you turn around and say, well, and, and so, for example, if I use like a retail example, if you can see somebody putting things into a basket, and then you notice that they haven't do- they've not they have dropped off the site. The ability to do things like to try and re-engage them and abandoned basket type stuff is really powerful. For us, things like people looking at content give us real-time signals on, on and allow us to change our recommendations on what you should look at next. So, yeah, you've read this story about politics or you know um, a scandal, or Love Island or whatever. Maybe yeah. you'd be interested in this thing. So it's, there's all that sort of stuff that can happen at an operational level. But also, if you think about things like anomaly detection, that becomes really powerful if you can stream that data. The big challenge there is, of course, having sources that can actually stream that data to you. So internally, that's not a problem because you can do a lot of stuff with events. But when you're dealing with third-party systems, not all of them are rigged up for that. And that is changing. And so we're seeing things like there's much more stuff in terms of being able to set up web hooks and API calls within you know various third-party platforms. But I think that's where I see a lot of investment going in terms of trying to get that data in as fast as possible, as well as more around governance.
2: Good sketch there, I think. Then of an organisation that's actually probably well into three or four level maturity. I would say in the way you describe it, in terms of organised around it more than the first few steps, in terms of clearing up the data and getting it in the right place, and actually clarity on on what the path forward looks like. So yeah, I think I, I really do think you. I think to Shalkia's point earlier, it feels like a pretty mature setup with a clear direction forward. And probably a number of other organizations would look at that and probably go god i wish i was there envious eyes yes yeah yeah, exactly like so what advice would you give people who are uh, beginning this journey and actually maybe a bit bogged down and you know clearing up the data or something along those lines
3: um i think i would suggest by starting small and come up with a clear goal so just don't try and boil the ocean is something i think is always really important i like the the creation of things like exemplars isn't it? you know so this idea of saying well let's let's find a use case and let's try and deliver that to the best of our ability rather than try and play whack-a-mole with data quality issues across the entire estate so pick a, a question you want to answer and that could be something as as nebulous as like what's customer lifetime value um up to you know or things like um you know if you're dealing with say like you know retailers it might be something like you know logistic turnaround times or goods lost in transit or that kind of thing and to take take a, a use case like that where you think you can probably get the data you need and build out something that enables you to do that so you can build all the right things and build that up because i think it's far better to start off with one small product that is high quality than attempt to try and just raise the bar on everything so it would be things like build out a really good platform to enable that, build out all the the most important thing with that is all the documentation, the cataloging, the lineage, the descriptions of that data, because if you want to get to the point of self-service, people have to understand data and know what they want to do and if all you've got is a set of tables or you know, like a tableau dashboard and a data set behind it with no description of what those things are you're never going to drive that change and um, so it's about giving people the skills and the information they need rather than having the best possible most efficient etl pipeline
2: Okay, what you've been looking at this week?
0: So each week I will do some research on what's trending in tech. And this week I want to focus on why becoming a data-driven organization is so extremely hard. So being a data-driven organization has been a priority for many organizations for decades now. But we have seen mixed results in that. And why is that? So according to a survey of executives, company culture is a harder hurdle to clear than any technical problem that they have. And on top of that, the continuing explosion of the amount of data and also the growing concerns of privacy and data ownership makes this more difficult as well. But there are a couple of principles that you can keep in mind when you do want to become a successful data-driven organization. And these are, firstly, you really need to think different because it requires a different mindset to become a data-driven organization. And you also need to fail fast and learn faster as well. Learn through experience, which often entails trial and error. And lastly, you need to focus on the long term because it's a transformation effort that really unfolds over time. So I have a question to you, Mark. Did you also apply these principles to your organization?
3: Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of them. I think. One of the problems is going back to saying about thinking differently with, with engineering, for example, with software engineering, you're very focused on on things that you can easily unit test um, and integration test, and you're not worried so much about state is the main thing, whereas obviously with data, it's all about state. So again, you, know, you can unit test functions and transformations work very well as functional processes and that kind of thing. So it's easy to unit test some of those. But it's when you get into, well, you know, If you make a mistake or you need to go and reprocess or reacquire some data, you could be going off to get multiple terabytes. And that isn't something that you're going to basically load in in an afternoon. So I think those kind of things are, are difficult. I think the challenges you mentioned around sort of governance and ownership are key as well. I think it's very hard to to govern effectively if you want clear on who your data owners are and what you can and can't do with that data and what the nature of the consent is and, and people you know particularly product managers have to understand what data has been consented to be done with because just because you've got a piece of data doesn't mean you can do whatever you want with it um you know you've got very strict rules on what you have what people have consented for you to do with that data and i think that's that's another big challenge as well as getting people who are owners as i said earlier so
2: how did you bed that in mark was that something that was part of a human-to-human governance conversation or are you managing to build that into the logic of the platform somewhere?
3: So obviously we have we have things where we capture consent. A lot of it is is about understanding that projects are doing the right thing with our data. And so we've got, you know, obviously, we've got a data protection office, we've got a data management function, the engineers are well-versed, you know, everybody's well-versed, and understands what our responsibilities are for data, partly through corporate training, but also through, you know, the experience that's built up over time around this.
0: And focusing on the long term, how long are you already into that transformation from a data perspective?
3: Oh, we're we're, we're many years in. I think it'll never end, but I think we are many years in, so that's why we're reasonably mature. I think it's difficult because... Obviously, data, the number of data sources will only grow. The volume of data will only grow. And like any other engineering discipline, particularly in software engineering, I mean, technology is constantly changing. And I think part of the problem is going to be because we are several years in, it, it's worth the time where we're looking at refreshing our technology estate and reevaluating where we are. And that gives you a bit of a headwind because you're now to have we still got the right platforms we need? Do we need to be considering what future platforms can give us? Because if you look at data warehousing now, Compared to 10, fifteen years ago, it's predominantly in the cloud.
2: I think the point you make about it never ends is absolutely spot on. As organizations go on their journeys, whether it's a data transformation or whether it's a cloud transformation or whether it's a you know the other D word, the digital transformation, I think what what a lot of organizations miss is the switch into a new way of working, that more sort of exploratory, constantly innovating, constantly engaged way of working. Is not the transformation journey? That's the end state, mm-hmm. and the exploration continues. Right? Absolutely. Also, at the, at the end of your point, you were saying now about it's predominantly in the cloud. Where are you on the cloud journey? Is it something that you guys are now looking at, or is it already done?
3: Uh, we're done. We're, we're, we're all in the cloud. The challenge with it is, of course, obviously, as, cha- as cloud services grow and more things become available, what do you what do you look to adopt? So, for example, you know, there's a lot AWS, which is our main cloud is is always introducing new services. How do you find the time to evaluate those and look at what those changes are and if you should adopt them as opposed to you know, just ignoring them and staying focused on, on doing something else so rather than choosing to adopt a new service should you invest back in something you've already adopted. Not very like, bright
2: light, bright light, bright uh, yeah. light, bright light, bright light, bright light. That's, like, <laughs> that's the innovation. The magpies
1: to the cloud. of cloud. Yeah. Yeah. Just oh, to say, double I'm, click on yes, I'll have a bit of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was prone to mag-
3: magpie development as the next person. And yeah. It is a challenge.
1: I think it's that thing, though, that is that um, everybody went to cloud and went, great, this is new, fresh, evergreen, but then realised that actually cloud now has an issue with technical debt or uh, backlogs that say, we did all that stuff, but we haven't kept it up to date, etc. And there's this new cycle of, hang on a minute, some of the things that we used to associate with legacy technology are now ideas that we still have to keep very conscious in our mind with cloud as well to stop that magpie effect causing proliferation of technology and then just a chaos basically it sounds like you've got good control over that but is there any thing in particular you've got around the best way to do that so that the engineers get the technology they need but you keep so you prevent proliferation of things that you
3: don't need we have clear rules on what engineers um, are allowed what their remit is and what they can do in terms of technology so um what requires architecture governance and what doesn't so you know we don't want to be really prescriptive in terms of blueprinting everything so i i you know you don't want to get into an argument over which JSON parsing library is the best one to use and that kind of thing engineers know that and they can solve that on their own rob loves that sort of conversation mark you're on you're on really thin ice here i'm, I'm worried if we get into it you won't have any listeners <laughs> yeah, left, yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't get stuck next
1: to me at a dinner party people me too Mark. me too on the listeners <laughs> pipe <laughs>
3: Um, so... The, the, those kind of things you want to leave at a level and, and certain services you can whitelist if you like in terms of, I should say, allow list. Um, so there are a bunch of things you can sort of pre-approve if you like for people to be able to use and not be too restrictive. I tend to draw the lines of programming languages because I think there needs to be conversations about that because what you don't want is 20 engineers and 20 programming languages and then somebody leaves and we can't maintain something else, you know, and that kind of thing. You don't want a, You don't want a very low bus factor for your team what we do want is to enable the right amount of self-direction and autonomy in a role so that's why i say we try to pre-approve things and say well these things these technologies yep you can use those as, as you see fit and um, you can't change cloud on a whim so I don't you know we don't want to come in one day and find out everybody's migrated off into you know Azure or GCP yeah. or something like that, without any t- without telling anybody.
1: Although that would be a, a massive governance failure to it? surprise in the morning with migrated cloud. <laughs> <laughs> the
2: FinOps team would be like,
1: "What's after <laughs> What? <laughs> what
2: about the reserved instance?" I love I love the
1: idea of an engineer just going, "Yeah, all right, let's do it." Friday night, yeah, let's go. <laughs> I
3: I do know of an organization that happened to actually
1: really yes. Oh my word. <laughs> moved cloud oh shit. you'd be like oh, well what's the meeting on the monday morning when you yeah. find out you go you've done what now hey
3: <laughs> my understanding was that there was a robust conversation luckily i wasn't anywhere near that i wasn't in that organization at the time
2: but, yeah. <laughs> well mark look thank you for that i think on that note the note of cloud chaos will uh, <laughs> will draw our conversation to a bit of a closer mark thanks so much for spending some time with us and sharing your insights and journey been a great chat
3: thank you very much for having me
2: pleasure now we end every episode of the show by asking our guest what they're excited about doing next now that could be watching the new Ed Sheeran documentary on Disney Plus for example all the way through to something you're excited about in your professional life so Mark what are you excited about doing next I
3: suppose this is kind of sad but I'm I'm actually quite excited I want to play around with some LLMs so I'm very interested in seeing what Github co I I thought I gave
2: you enough warning about Rob's interest in this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Earlier ma God, you, you again, I, I'm feeling I'm feeling at risk
3: i'm sorry i'm just really interested in in seeing whether or not it lives up to the hype um um, because i've seen some very interesting things so i know that it can obviously stitch things words together and I know there's been some interesting research done into llms are great because they can generate a lot of text but they don't necessarily know what's going on i kind of want to try that for myself really it it just seems like really interesting when you read like the articles about how it can generate some quite complicated code and, and some other things but then it falls down when you ask like chat GPT questions about i think there was one some researchers asked it what's better as a hairnet if you're working at a fast food restaurant uh, a used wrapper or a bun and it suggested the bun because he didn't understand the under lines so i just kind of want to kick the tires on it and play with it if that makes sense
2: it fully does yeah and and as sophisticated as it is it is not actual intelligence at least not yet so i think you're right it's its ability to distinguish about around these things when it's asked to distinguish i think is still lacking at the moment thankfully but yes a few years ahead of us i think with technologies like that that are actually very unpredictable both in terms of the power it will ultimately get to but then something that concerns us on the show quite a lot at the moment is like the the duty of care that also needs to come into using it appropriately not necessarily because it will you know lead to a terminator 2 style singularity moment though it might um it is more about the actual societal impacts that we'll have on the way to that if you see what i mean
3: yep yeah definitely i think it's going to be very very interesting times
2: fascinating stuff fascinating stuff so mark thanks again for joining us Uh, a brilliant conversation
0: So a huge thanks to our guest this week, Mark. Thank you so much for being on the show. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter. Dave Chapman, Rob Kernahan and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week.